Hi, and welcome to Encores, the podcast from Echoing Green that explores social entrepreneurship and the stories of visionary leaders advancing equity and justice worldwide. Echoing Green is a premier global investor in emerging leaders with the best and the boldest ideas for transforming the world, providing fellowship, community, seed stage funding, and strategic support at that critical stage where they're just trying to get off the ground. This season of Encores features Echoing Green Fellows in dialogue with each other about the joy, creativity, successes, and challenges of working to transform systems for the better and for the long haul, highlighting stories and advice from the moment these leaders decided to act. Encores explores our collective visions for a more just, equitable, and sustainable world. In this episode of Encores, serial entrepreneurs Gemma Bulos and Gayathri Dattar reflect on their global experiences in social innovation, community-driven impact, and movement building. Gemma is an award-winning social entrepreneur, 2007 Echoing Green Fellow, and the founding director of Kravis Lab for Social Impact at Claremont McKenna College. She currently serves as the executive director of the Global Women's Water Initiative, an organization equipping women leaders in Africa with tools to plan and implement sustainable water solutions. Gayathri is a 2014 Echoing Green Fellow, the co-operator of the Creativity Fund, and the co-founder of Earth Enable, a social enterprise that installs healthy and affordable floors for low-income families in Rwanda and Uganda. Together, Gemma and Gayathri get real about the internal and external shifts needed to create a system where proximate communities are in charge of creating impact. They also share their best tips and tricks for navigating the world of fundraising and donors. Hey, Gaia. Hey, Gemma. So excited that we could have this conversation. Yeah, likewise. Woo-hoo. You're one of my favorites. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Me too. Can you tell us, you know, uh, about yourself, about your organization, the titles that you hold, and, you know, sort of the day-to-day life that uh, means the most to you? So my name is Gaia Thridathar. Um, I think the fact that I'm calling myself Gaia Three instead of Gaia is in and of itself an interesting um, transition because I actually, my name is Gaia Three, but I've been going by Gaia specifically to make it easier for other people to assimilate to American culture more. So I think the name that means the most to me is Gaia Three, my full name. And the title that I hold that I actually like the most, I have, I have three organizations, so three different titles within those three organizations. But the one I like most is the one for the foundation that I just started, where me and my partner, who we always wanted to be kind of co-COOs, but now we call ourselves co-operators, which I really love because we are co-operating the thing, but ideally the whole point of everything we do is to cooperate with others to, to make big change happen. And what about you? Why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm Gemma Bulos, and I I have a few titles that I actually have as well. Serial entrepreneurs tend to be that way. So I am the executive director and founder of Global Women's Water Initiative, which is an organization in sub-Saharan Africa that, that trains women to become water sanitation and hygiene technicians, 
trainers and social entrepreneurs. I'm also the co-founder of my Echoing Green Fellowship organization, which is called the Single Drop for Safe Water, all about water. And then my current job is that I am the director of Kravis Lab for Social Impact at Claremont McKenna College. The day-to-day stuff that I really enjoy is constantly interacting with people about new ideas and constantly interacting with them Mm. about how do we make things not just better and more efficient, because that's what's gotten us into a lot of trouble, but more equitable and, you know, much more meaningful. My goal is that everybody has an opportunity to thrive. And so that's Mm -hmm. where I think you and I both have that sort of passion because anything we do is going to be informed by that same mission. And that's why I love social entrepreneurs and mission-driven organizations, because that's their touch point. Their touch point is much bigger than just, you know, bringing floors to sub-Saharan Africans or bringing clean water to Southeast Asians. It really is this bigger picture of like equity, social justice, and opportunity. Well, so Gemma, why don't we talk a bit about the work? So tell what's the name of your organization and the mission of the organization that Echoing Green funded? The organization that I co-founded with Kevin Lee or Kiwi was an organization called A Single Drop for Safe Water, and we're based in the Philippines. And what we do is we train communities to be able to design, lead, and implement their own water and sanitation solutions. The Philippines is the most disaster-prone region in all of Southeast Asia and arguably the world. So at any given time in the Philippines, there can be over 100,000 to over a million people dislocated. from their homes because of both the natural and man-made disasters. So eventually what ended up happening with the organization and where he was taking it is that they are really focusing on not only community-led solutions, but also community-led disaster solutions. So they are really focusing on every level of of disaster, right? The, the disaster prep, disaster a response, disaster relief, rehab, you know, rebuilding, all that stuff. And so they try and go to the root cause and, and try to anticipate those kinds of disasters in regions that are probably the hardest hit most consistently and really training those communities to be able to respond to disasters in really healthy and, and productive ways. Tell us about your organization and the mission. So my organization is called Earth Enable, and our mission is to make living conditions um, healthier and dignified for everyone in the world, but we focus specifically on rural families. And the reason we do that is that the housing industry really hasn't evolved or changed very much in the past, frankly, several centuries in a lot of places, largely because there hasn't been a lot of innovation in housing that is truly low cost and truly affordable and also truly sustainable. So we are innovating on housing products that make a tremendous health impact, but are also very affordable and, and environmentally sustainable. And our goal is really to build this industry rather than just about building an organization. Our goal is to build an industry where lots of people copy us. We look at microfinance as a, um, as a model for how it started in one place, and then lots of replicators emerged because it really made a lot of sense. So that's largely how we see this, this movement building. I love that around the movement building and about, you know, people copying you. I mean, that really should ultimately be, I think, you know, every social entrepreneur's dream because essentially what we need to be doing because we're trying to solve a social 
problem or environmental problem is that we want to work ourselves out of a job and still have the reach and the depth that we need to be having. And I think when we, you know, with the work that you do with housing, the work that we do with water and sanitation, where I see a big gap and, you know, a big opportunity is to be able to really recognize the value that people should have value in their communities. Like for us women, right? One of the reasons we train women is because they're disproportionately affected by the lack of water and sanitation. Yet, because this is sort of traditional, they're the traditional water bearers or the traditional, you know, caretakers of the family, their value is not recognized because it's expected. But where we needed to, what we needed to focus on was them bringing value to the community that had no question, that did make them, that did make them be recognized as people who are contributing to their community in much more meaningful ways. And water was that entry point because, you know, one, it was solving the problem, their problem of making it easier, their days easier and bringing and providing them more opportunities to be productive and earn money, but it also was something that the or the the community needed, and so that became sort of the galvanizing point, and it also became the the launching point for us to be able to train women to be able to bring locally led solutions and local and affordable solutions, so that their value would be recognized mm-hmm. in the community. Yeah, and I also think that the way that we're actively trying to shift the power dynamic away from, uh, you know, we're the we're the ones with the funding and the organization. So now let me help these other people and and to to kind of reshift that to instead let's collaborate and get some stuff done. Let's find ways to be very inclusive. I think that's something that's frankly a daily journey for me because I do find that over time I'm getting better and better at recognizing the moments in which. I'm still being quite paternalistic, still being quite colonial in the way that we're operating and how we can be very deliberate about shifting away from that. You know, I think where I I think our work changed was when when we stopped coming in with ideas and just came in with, you know, you know, just listening and just saying, what is it that this community needs? Where are the parts where you feel like you you could use a little bit more support and the way in which we transfer our information because we you know we're a capacity building organization we don't actually have we don't have products that we sell we have products that we train people to build Mm -hmm. and so as capacity building organizations you know that's where you can really go uh, off the rails with the colonialism, right? Because you can go in there and say, we have all this information, we're sharing it with you and you know you're and you need it, right? And and the way in which we go into into these capacity building trainings is here's information that you might not have access to. We'll just give you the tools, but you build the house. This is On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. We'll be back with more stories, advice, and reflections after a short break. On Course is presented with support from the City Foundation, which works to promote economic progress in communities around the world. Since 2018, Echoing Green and the City Foundation have worked together to build a more inclusive social entrepreneurship sector by supporting emerging innovators of color who are accelerating progress and transformation across the United States. 
Together, we are taking action to advance racial equity and help next generation leaders access their resources, networks, and support they need to increase social inclusion in their communities and help close the racial wealth gap. Welcome back. This is On Course. You're listening to founders and fellows Gemma Bulos and Gayathri Dattar. So Gaia, can you name the most memorable events that led you to your decision to start Earth Enable? Basically, it started as a school project for, for me. So I was a MBA student at Stanford, and I took this class. It's actually where we met. Um, I took this class called Design for Extreme Affordability. And the point of the, pro- of the class was to design a product or a service for some client organization that we had. So in our case, our, our challenge was to find a way to make the home or community healthier in rural Rwanda. So we, we came up with this earthen floor solution. And from there, it was kind of like, a okay, well, I really want this to happen. So let me do like a summer over there and try to find someone to take it up. And then within maybe a month of being in Rwanda, I realized I was going to be here for a very long time. Social entrepreneurship is what I was probably put on this planet to do. And, you know, building markets, building new structures, building new systems, breaking old ones, finding new ways to do things. It just felt so right for who I was. So I think the moment that I want to talk about is, is that moment when I realized that I wasn't just going to be here for a couple years to, to start something and then leave. I was going to be, and, and even if it's not within Earth Enable, the organization, I was going to be somebody that is, is deeply committed to not just achieving certain impact goals that I might have, but doing so in a way that might take longer, might be harder, but will, will be done so in a way that really reflects my values and I think will ultimately lead Earth Enable to a better place. It already is based on everything that you're telling us. I already, I already knew the work that you did with the floors, but now with the, the whole systems, that's fantastic. Yeah, well, even beyond that's that, I mean, cool. I mean, the fact that we, we've really invested in training our team and now our entire senior leadership team is people who grew through the organization uh, through the rungs. Like we, we've made very few senior level hires that, that come in and lead. And we, we haven't followed the model of hiring expatriates to, to do that anymore. We did for some time. And that was something that I think was, was an interesting you know, journey for me to realize that there's another way to do things in a way that's a little bit less yeah less less typical less traditional and and much more inclusive and much more reflective of, of the values that earth enable exudes what's the most memorable event that led to your decision i was actually a professional jazz singer and a preschool teacher way back in in new york in the early 2000s and on tuesday september 11th i was supposed to be in the world trade center when the planes hit I wasn't, I called in sick for very selfish reasons. And, and of course that was the day that changed my life and everybody else's life. And yeah. And, and how this all relates to how I ended up doing this work was because I was incredibly inspired by the New Yorkers that were around me and you know, what tragedy does, it just brings out the best in people. And so as a songwriter, I ended up writing a song called We Rise and I had this notion that I was gonna build a million voice choir around the world to sing it, to bring people together, not through tragedy as they were through September 11th, but now through sort of how we overcame it. 
And my invitation for people to join this this movement was, it was the metaphor, the notion that it takes a single drop of water to start a wave. And so I was inviting people to see that their every, every thought, their every word, their every action has that power, no matter what, a drop of water will ripple out, you know, will ripple out the water and it will affect the other, the other drops of water. And so I started to get invited to these conferences and one of them was the United Nations Water for Life Conference. And here I am singing this song and asking people to sing with me and having this hippy dippy message of like, ooh, everyone's a drop of water. We're all so powerful. You can do good, you know, <laughs> that. And then, you know, the other speakers were like 1.2 billion people in the world don't have access to water three to five million people die of water related disease every year you know all of a sudden I'm these these messages of like oh my god I had no idea there was a water crisis and so that was the day sort of my my metaphor turned into my cause I started to really go deep into everything that I could learn about the water crisis so maybe if we can try and uh, solve some of the issues around that, then it will ripple out and affect education and affect women's rights and affect health and affect commerce and affect all of those things. And so, yeah. yeah. Wow. It takes a very rare person to turn the metaphor into the cause and to actually (laughs) do it. But that must have been quite a transition for you. I mean, like, what were some of the early challenges you had and or like successes you had as a founder that helped you and those around you grow. As a as a performer, everything is about you. And one of the big shifts for me was to make that sort of ego, <laughs> turn that ego around, right? And and because I went into this water and sanitation thing knowing practically nothing, I really leaned on people who were smarter than me, who were better than me, who knew more about everything than me. And I really have to really prop up my my partner, Kiwi, Kevin Lee. When we first ended up working together, a lot of the things that he was saying we should be doing was very counterintuitive to what I thought. Uh, he knew that there was going to be a much longer, this was going to be a much longer road. And then in terms of community, you know, one of my biggest failures was that, you know, we went in and we trained people to build, it was a new technology to the Philippines. I thought we'd go in and just train everybody, but nobody, all the organizations that we were working with, they were like, well, now we have this technology, but we don't have the resources. We don't know how to roll it out. We don't know how to do the marketing for it. We don't know how to, you know, all of those things. And so it really turned our mission around from training people to build technologies into training them to design their own solutions for them, for their own communities. Mm. So that was sort of my big challenge, you know, but since then it's like, you know, I just surround myself with people who know more than me, who are smarter than me. I love being the dumbest person in the room. Always the goal. (laughs) What about you? What were some of your challenges? Such an analogous situation, honestly. I was just thinking, as you were talking, it's like, yeah, you could have literally find replaced through what you were saying, water with floors, (laughs) and you could have had the same answer. Uh, But I mean, the floor that we came to Rwanda with is nothing like the floor that we're building. Our biggest challenge was that our first couple floors really didn't work. I mean, there were cracks, there were, they were mushy, they were drying, like so many challenges. So anyway, so so by, by reorienting the entire organization not to be about me training others or us training them or even there being an us and a them to everybody's working together 
to solve this problem and to actually come up with a solution that everybody believes will work to solve this problem. And I think that the biggest success was that we were able to really from that point onwards create a lack of hierarchy in the organization, create an ability for the organization to be flat, to be um, democratic, for anybody in the organization with a good idea to be able to contribute to to what the what the end outcome looked like i genuinely believe that the best ideas at earth enable have come from is every part of the company and almost none of them from me and i think that is my biggest success is that i've created the the culture and the environment where that's possible I totally agree with you. You know, the people with the least resources are the ones who are the most resourceful, right? Innovation comes from constraints. And so here you have the communities, one, who obviously know exactly what they need and know what their resources are, what know what their assets are. They know exactly where to find the right kind of sand. For us to like go in there and say, we we know what's best for you or we know how, you know, how, how to solve your problems. I mean, that's the one big thing that needs to change. It's entrenched in how we were raised to think and entrenched in our world, and it is part of us. And so to extract that is something that takes a lot of deliberate reflection and and feedback and desire to want to be something different from who you have become due to all the years and years and years of conditioning. And this comes from both you know, the backgrounds that we come from and the type of education system that we grew up in and everything else from the society we live in as BIPOC women. I mean, all of these things are influencing the way that we show up and the way that we lead. And I think to do what we're talking about is is a lifelong journey of, of finding more and more ways to realize the ways in which we're broken and that we need to first figure out how we ourselves become who we want to be before we can do anything for anyone else. Yeah, preach, lady. <laughs> I think one thing that might be really helpful for other people to hear about is the tips and tricks that you've picked up along along our journeys that have helped you navigate the world of philanthropy, donors, fundraising, especially that I mean you were an artiste, you were you were not a you were not a fundraiser type. So how did you how did you figure out how to do that? Uh, I think the first the biggest thing that I needed to overcome in the you know in the very beginning, and I think this might be. Um, for a lot of BIPOCs is just that you are going into rooms with white people and asking them for money. And that, for me as a child of an immigrant, that was just not done. My father hated that I was doing that kind of work Mm. because he did not, you know, he, you know, it's all about being able to be self-sufficient and all that stuff. So, so, it was very much embedded in me to not ask for money. So mm. that was a very, very, very big thing I had to overcome. And I think what the shift that I had to make was not so much, you know, trying to get over that piece of, of begging for money. It was reframing what asking for money looked like. Mm. The, you know, the reframing was more around, look, I'm going to give you the opportunity to have an impact, right? And and then starting the conversations out with, you know, what is what's the world you want to see? What are the kinds of things, the changes that you want to have? So listening for their their needs and their desires first and then trying to reframe yours so that it, it, you know, and of course with integrity see if it aligns and then when it aligns then going then going forward and having a conversation about, you know, about funding. But I had to stop seeing it as me, Gemma, 
BIPOC woman asking for money and become the me, Gemma, the organization, the mission, looking for partners. I love the way that you put it of having to reframe your own mental model of what it means to be, you know, not the brown girl with a tin cup begging for money, but instead to be uh, a partner towards achieving a mission and a vision. And I think that's exactly I think that was that that was the mindset exactly for me that shifted uh, when I actually started to enjoy fundraising, which was a very big transformation in my life. In terms of actual tactical tick, trips, tricks and tips, I'd say that really understanding what just you use your resources and your network is, is the biggest thing. So know who other similar organizations are to you. Find out who funds them from annual reports from their websites. Then go to those donors, see who you might be connected to on LinkedIn. Try to get a conversation with somebody through somebody that you know. If you don't have a have a network yet that you feel like you can lean on, build it. Other entrepreneurs are usually very happy to help other entrepreneurs. And so if it's a matter of just, you know, picking someone's brain for something or asking, what do you think about this? You'll find that, you know, get 80 no's before you get one yes. That's fine. That sometimes happens. But I was once told that if you're not getting told no 90% of the time, you're not asking enough if you need money. So just keep on asking and keep putting yourself out there and keep using using your network to find introductions to like-minded people and to, to meet more like-minded people. And from there, really nurture those relationships. Relationships are life. That's all, all our work is. And it should apply the same way that you apply to your other partners. So Gaia, can you name a specific trend or innovation in the field of, you know, community-driven impact, which I, I know you guys are so great at, that worries you or another that might excite you? Yeah, sure. I think about this a lot as I think about what I think needs to needs to change in the field of community-driven impact. The one that they might actually be the same. I mean, the one that the one that worries me is that I do believe that ultimately in order to really achieve true results and true impact that is community driven the decision makers of where resources go need to be communities and i don't believe that we currently have efficient structures that exist in the world that enable that to really happen in a democratic process which is quick pitch why I started a third organization, fundbetter.org. We actually have a randomly selected group of people from the communities that the projects are meant to impact as our board, and they actually decide which grants to award based on what they think would be best for their own communities. And so I think if there are more mechanisms that exist like that, where truly it's, it's, it's community driven, what, what projects happen, that will be better. And I don't see, the thing that worries me is that I, I don't see that shift truly happening, even though I think what excites me is that I do see a shift towards, you know, local founders getting getting resources and understanding that people like me probably are not the right people to create impact in, in Rwanda in a place that I'm not from where I don't know the language unless I really have a deeply deliberate strategy to to, to be deferring my own power and decision making to people who are actually from Rwanda and who actually understand what communities need more. I think that the answer is to just recognize the power and privilege that we have and being able to take on the roles that we have and, and start the organizations that we start and be very deliberate about shifting decision-making power to, to people who are much more proximate to uh, the communities we're trying to serve. 
but you know, it's step by step. And so I think, I think that we'll, we'll get there eventually. Encourse is produced by Echoing Green. Since 1987, the Echoing Green community has been on the front lines of solving the world's biggest problems. Echoing Green invests in emerging leaders with the best ideas for social innovation as early as possible and sets them on a path to lifelong impact. In 2020, we launched our Racial Equity Philanthropic Fund to ensure that the social innovation field takes bold action in the racial justice movement. To join us and support new generations of social impact leaders from all over the world, visit echoinggreen.org. Okay, so then what ways have you leveraged Echoing Green experience to better serve your community? Echoing Green has been the most powerful community of other social social entrepreneurs that I have been a part of. And the reason Echoing Green has been so powerful, I think, is because there were so many different types of people who were so different from me working in such different contexts and who I could learn different parts of what leadership means from that the bonding that had to happen to to not to be the lowest common denominator ended up being very deep. So it wasn't necessarily just like, oh, what's your distribution channels that you use? What are your sales channels? What are the ways in which you whatever hire in Rwanda or Uganda or whatever it is? And so so you would have those conversations too with with people that you had that in common. But other than that, it really became about, you know, what what drove us, what motivated us? What are the what are the ways that we manage stress? What are the ways that we manage personal relationships? and family relationships and I think those types of that that type of fellowship and that that type of very intense deep connection with people that we had a whole several weeks with at the same time so could be checking in with each other over the course of several years it just it's it's so lonely to be an entrepreneur in so many ways and so building up that network of people to be lonely with was really something that I can't overstate how um, important that was to me. I totally 100% agree with you. I am echoing green ride or die because there's so many other, you know, uh, opportunities like this with the, you know, the different fellowships and different incubators. And, you know, some of them are a bit longer, some of them are shorter, but I think what echoing green does really, really, really well is they, they, they trust you at the beginning. Here's Mm -hmm. that, you know, idea of trust. They trust you from the beginning. They're the, they're, they don't need to, they don't need you to prove anything to them. They know that you are a, a responsible and transformative leader. They know that you have an idea that might not work. It's like they are investing in people and, and their idea. For those who are listening and inspired by your work, how can they find out more, Gaia? Yeah, you can always go on to any of the websites. That's www.earthenable.org, www.unlock-impact.com, or www.fundbetter.org. Those are the three organizations that I'm currently um, involved with. Woohoo! What about you, Gemma? How do we find out about, about all of your work? My current uh, social enterprise is Global Women's Water Initiative. So you can go to Global Women's with an S, globalwomenswater.org. For the for my Echoing Green funded organization that Kevin Lee is still running, I believe it's called singledrop.org. And then for the work we're doing at Kravis Lab, you can look up kravislab.cmc.edu. And there you have it. 
I'm so glad we had this conversation. Gemma, this was so much fun. Always so good to talk to somebody who expands my perspective and my and my vision. <laughs> Yay, me too. And, 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 and I feel the same way and someone who makes me laugh <laughs> about it too. This episode was produced by Nicole Hill and Sumia Misra with narration from Jessica Tillman. Thank you to Vincent McNatt, Lindsay Booker, and Alex Silverman for their work on this season. To learn more about Echoing Green, visit echoinggreen.org. Don't miss any of our episodes. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating so other listeners can find us. This is Echoing Green.